Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Two weeks ago, I looked at Genesis 12 and the first bit, which was Abraham and Sarai incredibly setting sail, leaving the comfort of Haran. God was calling them to Canaan. And we looked at the idea of leaving and arriving as integral to the Christian life. Today, we're going to come to another couple of incidents on this journey. And what I'd like is someone, first of all, to read out loud verse 10 to 13 verse 2. And then a second person to read out from verse 3 of 13 uh, up into um, verse 12. So who wants to do the first bit? Interactive. Thank you, Amanda. First story. Here we go. And remember... You guys are going to retell this in your own words in a moment, and I will pick on you. So be listening, be picturing it. This is time to be active, not passive. Go. Now there was a famine in the land. So, are you in the NIV? Sorry. It's okay, whatever. We can join you. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. For the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about it. Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Brilliant. Story number one. Try and hold that in your mind. Okay. Next story. Oh, my hand's going over here. Kelsey. I see. Tell me what to You can do from verse 3 to verse 12. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, 
or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan toward Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Brilliant. Great job. Okay, who wants to have a go at story number one? And uh, the basic, you need the first story is, let's just put it, Abraham's failure. Okay, very obvious failure in his life. Second story is kind of Abraham's triumph, you could say. So these are two deliberately contrasting stories that the author has put together to help us see, you know, the highs and the lows of Mr. Abraham. Okay. Someone over here want to have a go at the first story? And it doesn't have to be perfect, just the gist of it. But it's so important to practice storytelling. It's a lost art. Go, Robbie. Thanks, man. So basically where Abram and Sarah were, there was a famine. Yep. They were like running out of food. Yes. And they went to Egypt because it wasn't as bad there. They still had things. Mm -hmm. When they got there, uh, Abram was very scared that they were going to kill him yeah. so that they could take his wife. Mm-hmm. And so he convinced her that she should pretend to be his sister mm-hmm. so that they would not want to upset him and actually treat him very well yeah. so that they could uh, take his sister to mm-hmm. be their wife. So he let them do that in exchange for them giving him basically everything he could have possibly wanted. Yeah. But Pharaoh actually ends up being, like his whole family ends up being uh, like afflicted with diseases. There's like plagues and stuff that come on him. Essentially a curse is like put on his family. And he finds out that that's very likely because this was Abram's wife and not his sister. So he approaches Abram. What the heck? Why why would you do this? Like, Mm -hmm. why? you can't be here anymore. Yeah. And he actually lets him keep everything, mm-hmm. but sends him on his way. Ah, oh, that is worthy of a little well done. Great job. Okay, anyone on this side want to do the second story? Have a go. Don't worry if it's not perfect at all. I think Lily wants to have a go. No, Dad! Please have mercy! <laughs> Ten go on then. <laughs> so Abraham and Lot are setting out, mm-hmm. and um, basically all their companies are getting in fights. Yeah. They said the land wasn't big enough to support everyone, mm-hmm. and so they're gonna like go at it with each other. And Abraham's like, "Wait a second! No, 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 no! Why don't you just pick half the land? Yeah. And I'll take the other. You get mm-hmm. first dibs. Whatever you." Take you can have mm-hmm. I'll have the other and so a lot looked around and I think kind of like the area where some were looked real nice to him. <laughs> so he did that and then yep. just said together. Perfect. Great job guys. Good job. Proud of you. Excellent. Okay. So what we're gonna do, two natural groups, this side and this side, 
Daisy and Lily, you can be a little group at the back as well. I trust you. Um, okay, could you look at the first story and briefly ask the, 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 the two, standard two questions. What does this tell us about God? And what does this tell us about people? Don't overthink it. Just let those questions fuel your imagination. Spend like two minutes on the first, two minutes on, on, the, on the next. If you want to huddle up, that'd be great. You guys, if you check the second story, same two questions, go for it. Okay, if you want to turn, change the, to the next question, if you're still on the first one, the God one, to the people. One more minute. Okay. Okay, guys. Um, maybe let's start with this. Let's start with this group on my left. Stage left. Uh, any thoughts about either of those questions? You said either question? Or yeah, I mean, well, let, yeah, just quickly, just what came out? Well, because one I'll, of the two I'll questions. Take the one we ended on, which was yeah. this story is right off the back of like God saying a promise to Abraham and Sarai, where he's like sending them into the land. Yeah. Go here where I'll tell you to come, mm-hmm. and out of you I'll make a great nation. Yeah. And then all the people of the world will be blessed. Like, that's like what happens and then the fam so they go to that place mm-hmm. famine comes so he's like I gotta get out of here so he leaves the place that God told him to go yeah and then we, and then the story ensues mm-hmm. and he's like so he's self protecting because he's leaving I'm, I'm getting to the point about God ultimately yeah but he's like I gotta leave this land so there's this big like self protecting moment because he's gonna instead go to Egypt where there's food apparently and then they're coming up and he's like, oh, they're going to kill me because you're so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to take you. So let me self-protect again and lie and say you're my sister. Ultimately, God pulls them all out of that and they go back to the land. That's like where the story ended. Mm-hmm. I guess what we were saying about God is like God's faithfulness to accomplishing what he says he's going to do is completely not dependent on our performance. Right, yeah. Like he's the one that's going to do it. That's good. And it's not like merit-based. Brilliant. I love that. Very good. Totally agree. Anything else from that story that jumped out? Maybe one more little nugget? Anything about people? Merit didn't do anything wrong, but he still got the consequence of a wrong action. Yes. And so people who are unknowingly in wrong right, so it's something bad. yeah yes absolutely yeah you're right he was impacted because of someone else's sin which is very feels very relevant to our lives it's a great journey there's so much in these stories right it's just kind of wetting our appetites for maybe later study but what about these this side any thoughts second story Family tensions. <laughs> Victor, you seem to be the nominated spokesperson. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, it says God. It says in a parenthetical that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's, or he would. So he's a destroyer, or like, <laughs> 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 like yeah, he's capable of, of that. Um, and that Abram called on living in the Lord. So there's a, that's the only references to God in the passage. Um, collectively. Yeah. He can't be called upon. He can't destroy. 
But you know, and then the same vein as um, the story, uh, God's behind the scenes orchestrating things, yeah. even when it looks like, oh, because of all that we settled in Canaan. Well, mm-hmm. in in the details. That's so. So God allows tensions. Yeah, you're saying God's behind the quarrel. He's allowing it. Well, the result of it was mm-hmm. he ends up in Canaan, which yeah. is Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, that's great. Any any other nuggets? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's good. It kind of implies, I mean, it doesn't say it directly, it's in called on the Lord, so he can't be called upon. Yeah. Abram can go. initiate. Yeah. Like, so we can call upon. Uh-huh. But it kind of implies that the, the result, like what Abram did, like rather than allowing fighting, you say, let's, like, you you just pick a side and we'll mm-hmm. you know, like, separate this kind of counsel that the Lord gave him. It kind of implies right. that, that um, nice. you say it directly, but that God can direct, uh, give us direction or give yes. us advice. Or just, I like that. You're right. Abraham chose to, to follow that and trust that even if it wasn't the best plan, that yep. he'd be taken care of. Mm. Love it. What about the group at the back? Any observations, Daisy and Lily? Absolutely. That's that's huge. I think. I mean, anyone know what is what is what is the opposite of thinking that that people are sinful or evil? What's that common word that is very the idea in the world that we live, which is oh no, people are really good. They don't. They don't. They're not really people. People don't do bad things. It's cool. Say again. Naive, I agree. That's good. Brother Lily. I love you. This is an old soul. Naive, Father. Um, there's an H word. It's a very common sort of philosophical way of approaching this world. Humanist, yes. This is, this is, this is offensive. We, if, you, if you're used to the Bible, you don't see it like that. When you read the Bible and it's saying, you know, selfish, selfish, putting themselves at the centre. That's... That's not actually the air that we breathe. The world in San Francisco is like, if we just get enough, you know, things to help us, because humans are great, everything's going to become a lucky utopia. The Bible is like, uh, no. There is a very, very terrible, widespread disease called sinfulness. You know, selfishness, where you basically put yourself at the centre. And that's one of the big themes of the Bible, and it certainly comes across today. I want to pick up a couple of those threads, just speak for a moment, and then we'll come back to two questions, and then we'll finish. When I looked at this, this uh, passage, and I, I just, we, I don't know why, but I just love this sort of dark story. Uh, I, I think it's because it's kind of a little bit bipolar. It's like, one minute, you see this like, guy doing amazingly well in the second story, and then before that, you see this car crash. Um, and it's like, what the heck is going on here? Does anyone here ever feel like, in the space of even like one day, 
you are horrified <laughs> at, the, at, at how great you can do in one moment. And then how this other side of you... Anyone here? I, I, thank you, Evan. I, so, it's like, what is wrong with me? How can I do so well? And then weirdly, like the same person, for some reason I get hangry or something and things go wrong. So anyway, that's the basic idea. A story of failure and then a story of flying, if you like your alliterations. We see the first story I would summarise as anxious. Abraham, we'll look at that just for a moment, Abraham. And then the second story is like open-handed Abraham, right? This guy who's so kind of relaxed in this place of pressure. But the theme, the theme um, throughout this is pressure. Say pressure. 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 The first pressure is famine. The second pressure is family. Right? See what I've done there? You see, pressure. Take your pick. Take your poison. Which one do you find more difficult? Um, seasons of lack or seasons of family tension. But what is uh, the big idea here is that Abraham does badly, and we can learn from that, but he also does brilliantly. And at the centre of these two stories, there is one incredible uh, encounter that he has with the grace of God that changes him dramatically and completely. It's a grace encounter with God that you guys were starting to draw out that I think, my hypothesis, is why then suddenly in the second story, when pressure comes back again, he doesn't become all anxious and narcissistic and me, 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 but actually is like, hey, you go to the left or the right, it's fine. It's like, who is this guy? He's so radically changed, right? And the only thing I conclude when I look at this, the thing that makes the difference is the encounter with the grace of God. And I think it's the same for us today. I think we need to be those. If you want to follow God, need to know no, not that God is always expecting you to try harder. That's not the message of the Bible, friends. The message of the Bible is Jesus is the hero. He's the kind one. He's the gracious one. And he is relentlessly wanting to give, give, give to us. And that message of grace, when it gets into your bones, it does change us. So let's briefly look at those stories and then we'll come back. So first story is a story of Failure. Who likes learning from other people's failures? I love them. I actually find hearing about failure, what, this guy texted me recently and he just talked about all these trials and, and I was like, you have no idea how kind you've been to me. And him talking about how he got it wrong. And I'm like, yes, thank you. So God loves to be very honestly uh, blunt about the heroes of the Bible. This guy is Abraham. He is like revered as the father of our faith. Let's see how old Abe does when famine comes his way. So here we see in verse 10, now to be fair to this guy, he's elderly, he's stepped out, he's left everything. Remember last week or two weeks ago, he turned up and to his shock, the Canaanites were still in the land. But remember what he did is he praised God and we were like, wow, he built an altar to the Lord. What a hero. So in one moment, he's done so well trusting God when there's actually his situation is not what he hoped. But now it's almost like with the introduction of famine, you know, there's a straw breaking a camel's back. Now, obviously, we all know what famine is. Most of us, if not all of us, have probably never actually experienced literal famine. Um, I've spoken this message before, or elements of it, to a guy who lives in Mozambique. And it was a very different experience because this guy knows 
really what it is to be in a place of famine. But just picture the scene for a moment. There's this elderly guy with his wife and all of his household. They're trusting God, okay? They've stepped out. This is interesting. They're in the land of promise. Think about that. God's like, I have prepared this place for you. And now, here's a famine. Isn't that extraordinary? So friends, think about this. A.W. Tozer famously said, the Christian God is a God of love, but he's not a sentimental God. I.e., God, in his sovereign mystery, allows pain. You can be slap bang in the place you're meant to be, following him, and there be very real pressure and pain. Now, I hope that weirdly encourages you. Because most of us, when we see pain and pressure, we think, what have I done wrong? How do I get out? And obviously we see that he does do that. But the first thing to realise is, the first implication of this text is that God allows seasons of famine. Now, you may never experience an actual famine. Living in America, it's hard to (laughs) kind of visualise actual famine. But the principle of lack, lack, God allowing lack in your life, a sense of, I wish there was more in this area, probably is very, very real for all of us. Some of you may have a lack or a famine of friendships, okay? You may feel like, I just really wish I had a real person who was properly, deeply my friend. Or it could be you have a famine of finance or a famine in your health, you know, where there's a recurring sickness or illness that, you know, I think I'm following the law, but there's just this sense of lack of healing that he, he won't bring. Maybe there's like a famine a lack of peace in your broader family. You know, loved ones, brothers, sisters, parents, uncles, and you're like, I've, I don't know how we see this resolved, but there's this ongoing sense of just lack, you know? I'm just desperate for there to be a, a coming through of that. Maybe for some of you, it's a lack of, honestly, like honor or respect in certain areas of your life. Or maybe in your workplace, there's just like a lack of time or appropriate kind expectations on you. So the point being is there are many things in our life and many areas that God does allow kind of famine, you know? Even now as I'm saying this, I bet that some of us are just thinking, oh yeah, these areas actually feel quite plentiful. But this area, spiritually, physically, relationally, maybe in, you just feel like a lack of like a famine of clarity. Oh, I'm desperate for God to guide, right? Any of you had that? I know. I, look, I just, if you were just clear, God, I would think I would do it. Just, it just feels like it's a desert of clarity or of control. Oh, my gosh. Living in San Francisco, tr- trying to have some semblance of being in control of your life is very hard. And what he does is very understandable. It says here, there was a famine in the land and Abraham went. Do you see that? He went. He acted. And the implication is he probably shouldn't have done. Because it seems like as he starts to withdraw from the place of God-ordained lack, he tries to numb the pain by action and by doing stuff. It seems to spiral. It seems like he, he loses the peace. It feels like he had. Look at the, the thought process. He says, as he was about to enter Egypt, he went to his wife, 
Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are, even though you're elderly. Um, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is my wife. And then look at this. They will kill me, but they'll let you live. Now, this is seriously like, you know, spiraling thought patterns. If you've ever done any cognitive behavioural therapy, hugely helpful and very brilliant, I think, basic unit. That's hugely... One of the things they talk about is your thought patterns. And actually what we see here is this spiralling, anxious thought pattern. I'm sure none of you identify at all with this sense of like, oh, but this is happening and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And a lot of the time these thoughts just kind of dominate us and we don't even realise it. He's vocalising it and we can kind of go, oh, Abraham, ye of little faith. But then if we were to look inside our own hearts a lot of the time, when... When there's pressure comes, here's the, the, the big idea. When we, when we move away and we act and we start to sort of honestly become the king of our own life, anxiety always leads to this spiraling kind of self-preservation thing. That's the picture. You have a guy and, you know, we just see the king of heaven give him all these promises. And yet he is there thinking, I've got to look after myself. I've got to preserve myself. And it's extraordinary how this kind of, you could almost say like orphaned heart comes into him. He's just a guy, at the end of this first scene, the big idea is he's just focused on himself. That's the big idea. He's throwing his wife under the bus. He's basically just saying, I've got to look after myself, which is what anxiety does, doesn't it? If any of you ever struggled from with anxiety, and I absolutely have, and still, and I've grown a lot, but when I become anxious, Tom, I'm like this. I'm like this. I start catastrophizing, to quote a common psychological term. Like, everything's awful. Everything's going to go wrong. Ah! And I start thinking about myself and trying to look after myself. And like, the God of the universe is like, hello. All of heaven's like, what's Tom doing? Why is he, why is he going like this? Why is he being a drama queen, you know? Oh, it's terrible. But I mean, you know, I mean, this guy's in his 70s and he's a famine. So it's a lot worse than I've ever had. To experience, I can judge him, but I get like this over much less. I am ashamed to say, I almost don't want to tell the story, but I have to. Last week, a very kind man bought Josie and I 48 hours uh, at a hotel down in Orange County. Uh, just a lovely, kind guy. He's like, I want to bless you guys. <laughs> You're obviously quite tired. And he flew us down, and it was wonderful. And um, he actually flew us first class, which I've never flown before. Uh, when it's like a, an hour-long flight, it's not that big a deal, if I'm honest. But it was so kind of him. You know, it's not like a dramatically different experience. But the point being, here we are at the Orange County tiny... Have any of you guys been to the Orange County uh, airport? What's it called in, in, in Santa Ana? John, John Wayne. So it's kind of a lovely, calm experience. There's like about 12 people there. You know, and you're like, they kind of usher you in. And we are literally on row two. And the guy's like, okay, first class, if you want to come and, uh, you know, queue up. And I queue, and I, I, anyone here go, does anyone here sort of go weird around airports? I go, I get like, really like, we're going to get there three days early to make sure we don't miss it. And I'm like, stay calm, stay calm. No kids, just me and Josie, hardly anyone there, first class. And we go to the thing and I zap through, and Josie comes, zaps through, but she hasn't consolidated her bags. So she has a kind of like a, you know, like a lady's handbag thing and then she has like another bag and a big water bottle and 
They're like, sorry, ma'am, you have to consolidate your bags. So basically, all of the benefit of us being at the front of the queue is being lost. Because she's sort of slowly putting stuff together and all these families are going past us and everyone's steaming onto the plane. And I'm thinking, no, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get on like near the end. And then there'll be no room for my bags, but I'll be at the front. So then I'll have to go all the way to the back. You know, it's going to be a nightmare. So instantly, I see this like anger rising in me. We just had two days in a hotel with back massages, doing nothing. And I, am, and I and find myself internally, of course, externally, I managed to just about manage it, but only just. I was like, oh, honey, what you, what, hurry up. And anyway, we get on, and of course, it's fine. And I sit there deeply ashamed of my pathetic, you know, internal response after all this time. And I apologise to Josie, and she's fine. Anxious Tom... Anyone here slightly identify can so quickly come when there's a feeling of lack. That's the key, okay? Second story, and I wonder if there's any areas in your life where the spirit is like, you know, I've allowed this area of lack. How are you doing with it? Are you trusting or are you trying to change it? Second story that we see couldn't be more different. We see anxious Abraham is transformed into open-handed Abraham. And you recounted the story brilliantly. We see now it's, it's still a pressure situation. We don't know. Maybe uh, the famine is gone. We're not sure. Um, but maybe it hasn't. The, the text just doesn't say with this second story. But the point being is he's now back in Egypt. And now there's tension in his family. Now, as we approach Thanksgiving... As we approach Christmas, some of you have got interesting plans with many, many family members in a small area. Let's not belittle the reality of family tensions. Um, and it says that this tension started to actually mount between his family. So it's possible there's still famine. We don't know that. But what's definitely true is that there is now a real pressure relationally. And actually, I think it's true to say that in some ways, the most, the, the most difficult pain in this life is relational tension. I mean, if you, if you fall out with people you really love, like your spouse or your friends, your parent, it's horrible, right? It's not a small issue. So it's, this quarreling between them is a really big issue. And what's fascinating is Abraham, the guy who at moments earlier was, you know, self-protecting. He's now this extraordinarily different person. And he says, you know, you go left, I'll go right, you go right, I'll go left. He's just kind of like unrecognisable. Um, he seems so full of uh, faith and trust. He's so open-handed. And even though this kind of move has cost him everything, and the promises... Were not given to Lot. They were given to him. So he could have, he could have justifiably said, hey, Lot, you know, love you to bits. Um, we've had a good run. But obviously things are not working out with us all being on top of each other. So can you, can you just get some space and go away and we will take the promised land and you can go elsewhere. You know, the promises of God do kind of rest on me. So for the whole world, because uh, God's going to, he's promised he's going to bless the whole world through me. So it's important a lot that you, you give me some space, you know, that's, that's what I would be tempted to do. 
put myself at the center. But you see this remarkable different Abraham. He's just open-handed. He's like, whatever you, whatever you want. You know, if you want to go left, I'll go right. If you want to go right, I'll go left. And there's this extraordinary contrast here that the writer wants us to see. And I want to say this with all my heart. You know, um, when I think about this second open-handed Abraham, this man who claims to know God, if you are a Christian here today, and we audaciously, if you're a Christian, you claim to know God, right? You're saying, I actually believe that Jesus Christ wasn't his God. And that he's kind and loving and amazing. Think about that. There is an implication that that should change you and me. That we should be those as Christians, as Christ, those who follow Christ, who, who should be more like this second Abraham than the first. There's grace when, when anxiety creeps in, right? There's always grace. But the point here in the second story is this sense of like, wow, how do you do, how do I do when there's pressures and there's, there's like a sense of lack of another type? How do we do? Are we those who are able to, to kind of trust the Lord will ultimately provide or do we resort back to the, to the first? And I want to say this with all my heart. When I look at this open-handed Abraham and I see this, this, I don't know if he was joyful, I don't know, but he seems very kind and loving, and I bet if you'd said to Lot, hey Lot, how are you feeling around Abraham right now? He probably would have said, really loved. This guy is amazingly kind. He's just giving me all of control, and I'm going to go and pick all that wonderful bit of land. You know, I think he would have felt this kind of love oozing out of Abraham in this moment of pressure. And this is huge for us. As a church plant, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is loving well one person at a time. Our deep belief is that you can say, oh, we're going to change the world and talk all these dramatic things. But most people who, who have got a problem with Christianity, it's due to meeting Christians who are annoying and difficult and much more like the anxious Abraham, right? If they met more who were like the second, who's saying, oh, my heart is overflowing with generosity, you pick I've got love for you, even if it means sacrifice for me. That, I think, that picture right there is a picture of actually one of our deepest convictions as a church plant. Is that if we can just focus on loving well one person at a time. When we get the coffee from the local cafe place. When we meet neighbours out on the streets. When people come in who we don't know. When we, when we just live our life with one person at a time. If we're asking ourselves, what does love look like right now? I honestly believe this with all my heart. Something as simple but as hugely powerful as that is something that San Francisco desperately wants and needs to see. I believe with all my heart is that it's, it's, it's actually so, uh, in a sense, so doable. So doable. It doesn't take having some grand strategy. I think so much of it is about becoming a people who are more like this. So I think the stakes, the question of, well, how do you take someone like Abraham and make him go from anxious Abraham to open-handed? How on earth do you do that? I think that question is massively important. And I will finish with the how, which is how I think it happens. And you started to actually mention this already. And, it, and in some ways, it's this shocking central piece. How do you transform 
Robbie or Ryan or Amanda or Billy or Tom or Herman or whoever from anxious Tom to open-handed. What is the what is the thing that does it in the story? Well, let's go back there one last time. He says this, verse 14, when Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a beautiful woman. When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they, they praised her to Pharaoh. She was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male, female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord afflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of her his wife. And so Pharaoh summoned him and says, what have you done? Why do you say she's my sister? She's not your sister. She's your wife. Please leave now. And as he leaves, they're all um, blessed with incredible silver and gold from their time in Egypt. This is an incredible picture of the gospel. It started to come out. You see this picture of, you know, Abraham is allowing, he's basically pimping his wife, right? He's allowing his wife. We don't know whether Sarai was um, consenting or not. We have no idea. So it's possible she was more like, okay, in on it. But it's very possible she wasn't. But really, the heart of this, even if she was more or not, we don't know. You think about this. This is the kind of father of the Christian faith who is so looking after himself in the moment when his wife was most vulnerable and most needy. He is literally allowing her to potentially be raped. (coughs) Night upon night upon night. The implication is this goes on and on and on because there's time for him to grow in wealth over time. It's this sickening picture of like this old guy kind of going to bed every night and knowing just over on the other part of the palace, his wife is, you know, is with the, with, is with the Pharaoh. And so you should read this and you, there's something in you that should feel actually a little bit sick and a little bit angry, if not very angry. You know, if, if honestly, if I heard one of you guys, if you're married that you were doing an equivalent to this with your wife, I would like, I would forget I'm a pastor for a few moments. And I would probably be like, word in your ear, slam you up against the wall. What are you doing? This poor woman who's lovingly followed her husband, who's had these promises from God, she's faithfully following him. And, and at the moment of, of great vulnerability, rather than protecting her, he's just putting himself totally at the centre. And it's, and it's pretty stomach-churning. And this is, this is, this is, as I say, this is like the father of the Christian faith. This is shocking. Sometimes we, we idolise and we airbrush the realities of what the guys in the Bible did. And that robs us of actually the message of grace. Because what we see here, it says in verse 17, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on who? On Pharaoh. Think about that. There should have been like an audible gasp in the room at that point. You think about this. Pharaoh has actually been the most moral person in this whole story. The pagan king. He number one inquired. He could have just, do, he could have just said, hey, I'm going to have that woman. You know, but he didn't. He didn't use his divine right as often Pharaohs did. He inquired about her. And then he looks after her brother. And then uh, when he discovers the truth of all of this, he doesn't kill Abraham. He lets him go and he lets him keep so much of 
the wealth that he's got. So this, this picture is shocking. It is shocking and unjust. You have the most innocent and morally pure person in the whole story who is literally, it just says he was inflicted with serious diseases and his whole household. So his kids as well, we don't know what they've got, but maybe it's like leprosy or something really awful. And, and you see this picture of this guy um, who has done actually basically nothing wrong, who is being judged in the place of Pharaoh. Sorry, in the place of Abraham. Now this is, this is, this is, this is mysterious, right? This, this should make you angry. You should, you should go, this, no, 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 this is not right. There's something unjust about this. Why on earth should, should Pharaoh be just, why should he be judged in that way? And why should this honestly horribly unpleasant man at this point? You shouldn't like Abraham, okay? There's times where you may aspire to be like him. At this moment, think about this. This is a, a really unquestionably awful dark moment in his life. He should have had the holy God slamming him against a wall saying, Get your act together, son. And unbelievably, this coward watches as the king, the most powerful man in the whole land, comes to him with like, I don't know what it was, serious, maybe skin coming off, saying, what are you doing? I've, I've heard that she's not your sister. She's actually your wife. Why would you lie to me? It's an extraordinary experience, a story story. And, and he says to him, Go. And go. I see, guys, this is, this is a picture of Jesus. Every part of the Bible is ultimately telling us about Jesus. Why is it about Jesus? Because Jesus was the truly innocent person. The truly innocent person. Most of us can feel more like righteous anger about Pharaoh. When I read this, I'm like, oh, that's really unfair. Poor Pharaoh. And I just get used to Jesus hanging naked, dying on a cross. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, that's kind of what he does. It's unbelievable. Like, this is a picture, you should, that sense of this is so wrong. You see, Romans 4, verse 5, says these extraordinary words. It says, to him who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the evil, to him, his, right, his, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4 is saying that the gospel it's not about people, it's just to him who does not work. I think of like a couch potato, a lazy person who just draws off the state. Yeah, and we're going to watch TV all day for a job. The one who does not work, okay, and, make, and would therefore probably make Americans and British people very angry. He will not work, but trusts him, God, who justifies the evil, who justifies the ungodly. To him, his faith is counted as righteousness. What? I can hear you shocked in your core, silent way. What? God justifies the evil? That makes no sense. That is the gospel. The gospel is not God chooses good people and then helps them go to heaven. The gospel says you are all, say all, all. evil. And I know that's a shocking word, but it's actually, it is very biblical. We're all wicked. We are all broken. He loves us to bits. But as we saw, we are all a bit like Abraham. You may not have done this exact thing, but come on, who here can ever say they haven't put themselves right at the centre and used other people? I do all the time. That is still in me. And I see myself in this man to some degree. And I see the shock that just as God would judge Pharaoh, 
and treat Abraham in a scandalous way. I mean, you can almost picture him with all of this kind of, you know, like bling. <laughs> you know, he's got all of this like gold robes or something. He's been made incredibly rich. This really cowardly evil guy is walking out. And the innocent man in the background is ushering him away. Man, this is a picture of the gospel. Amen. This is a picture that at the cross we believe Jesus, the truly innocent one, was drenched in the righteous wrath for Tom, for, for Tom Shaw. All the stuff I have done, or I am doing, or I will do. And so we should be, we, you know, this, this leads us to say, Lord, you know, all glory be to you. This gospel is, should make you in some ways angry, unjust, and in other ways just make you baffled and confused. You know, um, the idea that Abraham could so fail, right? And yet God's like, he's my friend. It says in the Bible, <laughs> this blows my head, that Abraham was a friend of God. And you know what, Abraham, he does this again in a couple of chapters. He does it again. But isn't that us? Don't we have those moments where we fail and we can't believe how selfish we've been? I was like, Lord, I'll never do it again. I'll never do that. And then guess what? We do the exact same thing. And the Bible says that God calls him his... He says, Abraham was a friend of God. I mean, I would, not, I would not want a friend like that, if I'm honest. If I knew one of you had done that, I'd be like, well, still his acquaintance. But have you heard what he's done? I don't know if I'd want to call him friend. But God, I love this. This is a picture of his covenantal love. His love for Abraham is wrong. He doesn't deserve it. I'm sorry I'm getting passionate. I'm getting off my stool, but I'm trying to keep myself calm. It's, doesn't it, it makes my, it makes, it just, I never get over grace. I never get over this. And I get angry at God for being kind to him. And then I suddenly think, oh, thank God God's kind to him. Because actually I'm far more like him than I realise. Amen? And if we don't realise that, then God has to go to even more work. And so this final point is that Abraham, it seems like he walks out, you know, covered in his big gold medallions. With all his gold, you know, sort of Lamborghini, all this unrighteous wealth, and his poor wife, I'm sure there was tremendous tensions in the car. You know, like, what the heck happened? He's like, and he's coming out like, God, why have you treated me like this? Why have you been kind to me? I don't understand this. And here's the final point is when he therefore has this second story that we've looked at, where there's the tension comes, but he's so generous, it seems to me. That he has forever begun the journey of understanding the grace of God. He's literally like clothed in righteous robes, as it were, by grace. And so I think that's why when he then comes and is confronted with this family tension, he's able to be like, man, if God is going to, you know, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. You know, if your goodness is going to keep running after me, even when I am that sinful, I can, what can I do to outrun your grace? I can't do anything. You know, one of the things I say to myself more and more nowadays, there's three truths I say to myself most days. You are safe, you are significant, and you are full. And they counteract three big lies in my life when I become anxious, Tom, which is you're not safe, you're in danger, God's not looking after you. And you're not important. No one cares about you. And number three, you don't have enough, Tom. 
You've got to look after yourself. You've got to scrap. So those three lies, ancient lies, I am learning to speak. No, no, Tom. And I literally walk my dog and I say, Tom, you are safe. Your father's got you. He knows every hair on your head. You're safe. Even if you don't feel like it, you're safe. And number two, you're significant. <laughs> Before all of heaven, you're so significant. And number three, Tom, you're so supplied. You're full. You have everything you need. You may feel a lack, but you have everything you need. And I am noticing, little bit by little bit, when in life I feel, man, a lack and a sense of pressure, I am noticing that I am growing in responding in an open-handed way. I've got a long way to go, I admit it. But I am learning to live in that overflow of the true God. Not, even if humanly and horizontally it doesn't feel like that. I'm like, well, if, if God loves me and he loves me like he likes Jesus and I'm now in Jesus, then the actual truth is I am safe. Hallelujah. Yeah. I don't have to just kind of, you know, defend my quarter. God's got me. I'm safe. I'm safer than I could ever imagine. And I am significant. I am important in this world. Even if humanly no one else agrees before God. I am important. I am important in this world. I have meaning. And number three, I am full. I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Even if I don't feel like I have enough fullness financially or friendship-wise or strategy or wisdom or, or energy emotionally and I'm too weak in all those areas, you actually are the one that fills my cup. And it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Hallelujah.